Some call it insight. Others call it vision. At Pershing, we call it perspective. A perspective you'll benefit from, from a custodian you can rely on. One who can help navigate the big picture and whose products give you a competitive edge. One who considers everything. What will help you succeed today and tomorrow? Open yourself to a new perspective and open the possibilities. Consider everything. BNY Mellon Pershing. Learn more at pershing.com slash go independent. Pershing Advisor Solutions, LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. Hey, everybody. Today is a very special episode of The Breakdown, and it's one that I hope you can refer back to for years to come. I'm going to take my time here today, and it really means that much to me, and I hope it means that much to you. But before we begin, I really need to properly introduce myself. I'm Sean King. I'm a journalist. I'm a CEO of a media company. I'm a trained historian. But first and foremost, I'm a lifelong advocate for justice reform in this country. I'm 39 years old, and I've been fighting for justice reform for 22 straight years. It's the work of my life. For years, I worked in jails and prisons and youth detention centers as a full-time teacher. I fought to free people from death row. I fought to change laws, and I've seen them implemented. I help run a PAC called Real Justice, where we elect new district attorneys across the country, and I've seen whole systems start to change as a result of that work. If you've heard of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour theory, that it takes 10,000 hours of work on a thing for you to become an expert in it, I've put in my 10,000 hours on justice reform. I mean that literally. I've done the math. I've written over a 1,000 published articles on injustice in America, more than almost any writer in the nation. And I said all of that to say that this week, I've heard a very dangerous lie being told about how the systems of mass incarceration were built in this nation. And I didn't expect to have to respond this way because I didn't expect Joe Biden to lie about the 1994 crime bill. He wrote it. He was the primary author. He fought for it. He claimed credit for it and fought for that credit. And the results of the crime bill were devastating. Every single expert on this topic agrees, and I encourage you to consult the experts and their text and their feeds and their timelines, because all of them agree that the 1994 crime bill was devastating, particularly to black communities and to Latino communities, and it ravaged them. This week, Joe Biden took the stance that not only is he not sorry for the crime bill, but that it didn't even increase mass incarceration. He said that. And it's shameful because either he's willfully lying, which is horrible, or he's just plain ignorant about the true impact of the bill, which is also horrible. Either way, I have a major problem with it because these laws from the 1994 crime bill These laws are still in effect, and they do damage, severe damage in our communities every single day, 24 hours a day. They are actually at the root of modern-day police brutality. And today I'm going to do two things. I'm simply going to let Joe Biden speak for himself on this issue and show you what he said about the 1994 crime bill 
before he was running for president. And I'm going to introduce you to a man who voted for the bill and said that voting for the 1994 crime bill was the single biggest mistake of his life. One that he said he had to repent to God for. Let's dig in. This is Sean King, and you are listening to The, the, the Breakdown. The, 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 the Breakdown. When you get a chance, I'd like for you to read the book Locking Up Our Own. It's by my friend James Foreman Jr. And it won the Pulitzer Prize last year. And it tells the hard, painful truths of who and what caused the crisis of mass incarceration in this nation. James is a brilliant, kind soul. He's a professor at Yale Law School. And he goes where most previous authors were afraid to go. And if you haven't read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, please read that too. And and here's the thing. I never want you to just take my word for it on these issues. Not on today's episode or on any episode. Do your own research. Fact check me. Become educated on everything that we talk about. And I want you to do your own research. But when you do, you are going to find that the United States not only has more people in prison than any country in the world. But right now, the United States has more people in prison than any country in the history of the world. And that's not an accident. It's on purpose. And you're going to hear me say this many times. The systems and structures of mass incarceration in the United States, they aren't broken. And I know why people say that, and it's almost right. It's almost true. It seems like something is broken, but the systems of mass incarceration in the United States, they're not broken. It's quite the opposite. When something is broken, it suggests that they were well-intentioned and well-built, and they simply deviated a little bit to the left or to the right, but they have a few cracks. That's not what happened. The systems and structures and policies of mass incarceration were built on purpose. And they're firing on all cylinders. They have deep roots that go all the way back to slavery. But from the day white men landed on this land, all the way until the 1970s, and I mean that literally, I mean for 481 years, I I mean specifically, I don't mean generically, you go all the way back to 1492 and then go all the way forward to 1973 That's 481 years. For 481 years in this country, the United States never had more than 300,000 people in prison, ever, for 481 years. Right now, over the course of a year, we have 10 million. And for literally 481 years, it didn't cross 300,000, ever. And that number exploded in the 1970s, not because our nation had an explosion in crime, but because the Nixon administration and several subsequent administrations decided to create something that they called the war on drugs. But it was never really a war on drugs. It was always with bold print, capital letters, underlined and highlighted, It was always a war 
on people. If you watch Ava DuVernay's documentary, she explains it well. After the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act of the 1960s, the Nixon administration wanted to figure out how to suppress the black vote. And his director of policy, John Ehrlichman, openly admitted this on the record in an interview that the Nixon administration wanted to figure out how to criminalize blackness itself. And I want to read a quote to you from Ehrlichman that he made in a 1994 interview to Harper's Magazine. This is a direct quote from John Ehrlichman, the director of policy for Richard Nixon. This is his quote. Quote, The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? These are still his words. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders. We could raid their homes. We could break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? This is the final statement from John Ehrlichman. Of course we did. End of quote. Mind blown. It's what we always believed was taking place. But John Ehrlichman, the director of policy for Richard Nixon, openly admitted that they were out to criminalize blackness itself, but they knew they could not make it a crime to be black, so they found another way to do it. Those were the words of Richard Nixon's policy director, admitting that they fabricated the war on drugs because they knew they couldn't criminalize blackness itself. And through the 80s and into the early 90s, as that war continued with the Reagan and Bush administrations, mass incarceration continued to grow. But in 1992, with Bill Clinton becoming the first Democrat elected president since 1976, Democrats decided that they needed to own the issue of being tough on crime. They needed to own that issue for themselves. And in the name of making black communities safer, President Bill Clinton worked directly with one man to not only write the most expensive, most extensive crime bill ever authored, but he worked directly with this man to get it passed in Congress. And that was Joe Biden. And I need to play you a clip of Joe Biden giving a speech on the Senate floor fighting for this crime bill. Now, this speech is in 1993. No single person fought harder, gave more racial tropes about predators injuring your wife and mother than Joe Biden. Here he openly says that he doesn't even care what the root causes of crimes are. And I need to play this for you so it can set the scene for what Joe Biden was thinking when the bill passed. Here we go. We must take back the streets. It doesn't matter whether or not the person that is accosting 
your son or daughter or my son or daughter, my wife, your husband, my mother, your parents. It doesn't matter whether or not they were deprived as a youth. It doesn't matter or not whether or not they had no background that enabled them to have to uh, become a, a social uh, become socialized into the fabric of society. It doesn't matter whether or not they're the victims of society. The end result is they're about to knock my mother on the head with a lead pipe, shoot my sister, beat up my wife, take on my sons. So I don't want to ask what made them do this. They must be taken off the street. That's number one. There's a consensus on that. Unless we do something about that cadre of young people, tens of thousands of them, born out of wedlock, without parents, without supervision, without any structure, without any conscience developing, because they literally, I yield myself three more minutes, because they literally have not been socialized, they literally have not had an opportunity. We should focus on them now. If we don't, they will, or a portion of them will, become the predators 15 years from now. And Madam President, we have predators on our streets that society has, in fact, in part because of its neglect, created. Again, it does not mean because we created them that we somehow forgive them or do not take them out of society to protect my family and yours from them. They are beyond the pale, many of those people. Beyond the pale. And it's a sad commentary on society. We have no choice but to take them out of society. And the truth is, we don't very well know how to rehabilitate them at that point. That's the sad truth. I'm the guy that said rehabilitation. When it occurs, we don't understand it and notice it. And when we, even when we notice it and we know it occurs, we don't know why. So you cannot make rehabilitation a condition for release. That's why in our system, there's the federal system, you serve 85% of your time. It's a shame, but we don't know how to rehabilitate. But there is a consensus, and I will cease. A, we must make the streets safer. I don't care why someone is a malefactor in society. I don't care why someone is antisocial. I don't care why they become a sociopath. We have an obligation to cordon them off from the rest of society, try to help them, try to change the behavior. That's why we do in this bill. We have drug treatment and we have other treatments to try to deal with it. But they are in jail, away from my mother, your husband, our families. But we would be, being, we would be absolutely stupid as a society if we didn't recognize the condition that nurtured those folks still exist and we must deal with that as you may know joe biden is on the presidential campaign trail right now and reporters and others are starting to ask him about his role in building mass incarceration and on this past tuesday he took a question from the crowd and i'm embarrassed to say that he openly lied in his response to this young woman Catherine. The young woman in the crowd asked Biden what specific policies he would introduce to fix the damages in black and brown communities caused by mass incarceration. And in his response, Joe Biden told two lies. 
first, he, he offered no specific policies. That's just the subtext. But he told two specific lies. The first lie was that his crime bill only impacted people in federal prison. You'll hear Joe say, hey, let's set, let's set the record straight. 92 out of 100 people are in state prison, not federal prison. And when Joe says this, his inference there is that his bill had nothing to do with people in state prisons. And I'll address that shortly. But after Joe Biden said this, Joe Biden said something that I could not believe. He just openly lies and says that the crime bill did not create or exacerbate or grow mass incarceration. Let me play the clip for you. The, 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 the breakdown. Folks, let's get something straight. 92 out of every 100 prisoners in a behind the bars are in a state prison, not a federal prison. This idea that the crime bill generated mass incarceration, it did not generate mass incarceration. So that was Joe Biden on Tuesday, flat out defending the crime bill for the second day in a row. In response to 2019, Joe Biden, I need to play for you 1995 Joe Biden. At this point, his crime bill had already passed. And you'll hear Joe in this press conference brag not only about how he wrote the bill that forced federal judges to give people harsh mandatory minimums when they were convicted on the federal level. And you'll hear how much he wants that and likes that. But here, you'll also hear Joe Biden say something very disturbing. Here, Biden makes it clear that in order for states to get any federal money for jails, for prisons, or for police departments, they must agree to copy the mandatory minimum prison sentences that he created and openly said that he loves on the federal level. Now, you have to understand, this crime bill was tens of billions of dollars, and it was for jails, prisons, and police officers. 2019, Joe Biden says, hey, I had nothing to do with the states. It only affected federal crimes. That's a lie. I want to play the clip for you of 1995 Joe Biden. The, 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 the breakdown. Yet the House crime bill now mandates for them to get money for prisons. They have got to keep every prisoner in jail like we do federally 85% of the time that for which they're sentenced. Right now, they're only kept in jail in the states on average 41% of the time. I like the idea they keep in jail longer. I'm the guy that wrote the bill requiring federal judges to keep people in jail 100% of the time for which they're sentenced, and in notable exceptions, only 85%. So I'm all for tougher enforcement. But these guys just went through this whole mandate debate saying, hey, don't tell the states what to do. Did you notice that Joe Biden said that before him, before his policies, states were only having men and women serve on average about 40% of their prison sentences, but that he fought to make sure that if they got any money, if states got any money from federal government or anything on law enforcement for jails and prisons, which all 50 states did, that they'd have to match his mandatory minimums of serving 85% of your time. So for Biden, 
to now come out this week and act like his 1994 crime bill had nothing to do with state prisoners or nothing to do with mass incarceration on the local level is just a lie. But it's bigger than that. The single biggest feature of the crime bill was the federal hiring of 100,000 new police officers. Cities and states were given tens of billions of dollars to fund this. And guess what those 100,000 police officers did? Guess which communities were flooded with police? Guess which neighborhoods were flooded with police? Guess who was arrested and prosecuted at record levels? Black and brown people. And after Joe Biden's 1994 crime bill, listen to what I'm about to tell you. After Joe Biden's 1994 crime bill, from 1994, when the crime bill passed, until 2004, in just 10 years, the number of people in jails and prisons nearly tripled in this country. Those 10 years, from the day the crime bill passed until 2004, those 10 years were the single largest years of growth in mass incarceration in American history. In those 10 years, ravaged black communities from coast to coast. And I have to play something that is so transparent and so honest and earnest that it's even hard to hear. In a recent interview, Congressman Bobby Rush, who is one of the most respected members of the entire Congress, Congressman Rush, who was a former Black Panther from the south side of Chicago, who, by the way, actually defeated a young man named Barack Obama when Barack Obama first ran for Congress. He ran against Bobby Rush, who was so popular that Rush beat him. Congressman Bobby Rush did an interview that I need you to hear, where he not only addressed the fact that he voted for the crime bill in 1994, he starts the interview off with Tamron Hall by saying, quote, these are his words, I am ashamed of my vote. I sincerely apologize to my God. I apologize to my community, to my family. And he goes on to say, that was the worst vote. As I look back over the years, that was the worst vote that I've taken since I've been in Congress. And I want you to hear this clip for yourself because it's the most honest, transparent moment really that you'll ever hear from anybody about the 1994 crime bill. And Congressman Rush concludes in his interview by saying that he thought the 1994 crime bill might be the most destructive thing for black people in the past 50 years. I want you to listen to it now. It's a painful, powerful, instructive moment. Let me play the clip for you. I am ashamed of my vote. I sincerely apologize to my God, apologize to my community, to my family. That was the worst vote as I look back over the years that I've taken since I've been in, in the Congress. 
it was a vote that really was accompanying with a lot of hope that we will finally be able to deal with not only the issue of crime in our community, devastating crime, but that we will also be able to do those things and have those programs and policies to deal with the other kinds of issues, the other problems in our community. And what happened with the crime bill and its implementation was that there was too much of a focus, too many resources on locking them up, but no resources on love and compassion. And as a result, we have devastated our communities, devastated our families, devastated our futures. And you can compare what happened with the crime bill and with the reaction. Well, let me just say this. Crack cocaine and the crime bill were the two worst issues, problems, catastrophes that the black community has suffered through in the last 50 years. We, I absolutely apologize for voting for that bill. I repudiate not the spirit, but the details of that bill. We have not accomplished anything other than further destruction of our communities. I don't think you'll ever hear a more honest, transparent moment from any member of Congress on the true, actual, on-the-ground impact of the crime bill. Congressman Rush repudiated the bill. He repeatedly apologized for the bill. The man said that he apologized to God for the bill. Do you know why he did that? Because he lives and works and represents the south side of Chicago, which was absolutely ravaged by this crime bill and is still paying the price. Congressman Rush literally said that right next to crack cocaine, that this crime bill was the single most catastrophic force in the black community of the past 50 years. And after Bobby Rush said this and put himself out there, like wore his heart and his mind and his soul on his sleeve, after Bobby Rush said what he said, I want you to hear what Joe Biden said in an NBC interview when he was told about Bobby Rush and his transparency. Biden was then asked if he regretted the crime bill. And without even a hint of remorse, or pause, he smiles and says, no, not at all. In fact, I drafted the crime bill, if you remember. Those are his words. No, not at all. In fact, I drafted the crime bill. Let me play the clip for you. The Breakdown. Bobby Rush, member of Congress, said the other day, I'm ashamed that I voted for the 94 crime bill. 
You ashamed of that bill? Not at all. Um, and in fact, I drafted the bill, as you remember. I know that. Now, that wasn't an interview from Joe Biden when he entered Congress in 1974, or from 1984, or from 1994, or from 2004, or from 2014. That was a clip from 2016. By that time, just as Congressman Bobby Rush said, the 1994 crime bill had completely ravaged our communities, flooding them with police, almost completely skipping over the root causes of crime and despair. It offered no real solutions, and it carted millions upon millions of black and Latino folk to jail and prison. And anybody who's lived in these communities has experienced it, has felt it. You've not only felt it in your community, you've felt it in your family. In Joe Biden's response, when asked if he had any regrets, was a calm no. Well, let me be the first to say to Joe Biden, fuck you for your calm no. Fuck you for flippantly saying this week that your crime bill didn't even impact mass incarceration. And fuck you for thinking that you can look anybody in the face and say this bullshit without somebody calling you out for it. It's abusive. It's dishonest. And it's disgusting. Because our communities to this very day are still being ravaged by these laws that you created. And for you, Joe Biden, to look right into the camera and say with a grin that you don't have a single regret about it infuriates me. It's wrong. It's arrogant. And I simply won't let Joe Biden say these things without a retort. And just as he has been flippant about his role with Anita Hill and flippant about the Me Too movement, he has been doubly flippant about his record on building, constructing, imagining, envisioning, and fighting for the systems and policies of mass incarceration, then defending them every chance he got. And don't tell me, hey, Sean, that was back in 1994. He defended it this week. He defended it in 2016 after Congressman Bobby Rush put his heart on the line and said, I have to repent to God for what I did. And Joe Biden fought like hell to get it passed, and he fought like hell to get the credit for it. He owns this. And this week, he made it clear that he wants to own it. And so, Joe Biden, we lay it at your feet. Break it down. The break, the break, break, the break, the break, the break Thank you all for making it all the way through this episode of The Breakdown. If you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, we'll be right back here every single weekday, breaking down important news stories and issues. And we'd love for you to subscribe on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And please share this podcast with your friends and family. Our next big goal is to get to 100,000 subscribers. 
and we're just not going to get there without you. Have you left a review yet? On Apple Podcasts, we now have over 5,000. We're almost at 6,000 five-star reviews, but we're aiming for 10,000 reviews. So we still want to hear from you. So please leave your best review when you get some time. Of course, thank you so much to the nearly 30,000 founding members of the North Star, whose generosity even makes this podcast possible. I love and appreciate each of you so very much. And if you love this podcast and you want to support our work, or you want to see the show notes and transcripts for each episode, we'd love it if you'd consider becoming a founding member of our community at thenorthstar.com. There we not only have our podcast, but hundreds of original articles and stories and commentaries from some of the leading scholars and thinkers and journalists in the world. Lastly, a shout out to Richard and our editing team for helping with the transcript for this episode and all of the transcripts. To our associate producer, Lissandra, and the podcasting director and senior producer, Willis, for their hard work on this and every episode. Take care, everybody. For all you foodies out there, I'm unwrapping a McDonald's steak, egg, and cheese bagel. Ooh, look at this steak. And the juice running down the side. Got a little bit on the wrapper here. Mmm. And then the fluffy egg and real cheese folded over the side looking just so good. Mmm. Mmm. Grilled onions and a butter bagel, too. Thumbs up for McDonald's steak, egg, and cheese bagel for breakfast. Love it. Mmm. Ba-ba-ba-ba. I participate in McDonald's.